Chapter 23 Sad news travels fast. We've decided to wake Dad here at the house, since it's the place that he most loved, and though we designated tomorrow for formal visiting, that doesn't stop others from coming today. After the judge and his wife leave, two of Dad's former law clerks drop by, as do several of his law partners, and as the afternoon progresses, a steady trickle of locals. I tell myself that this keeps us from dwelling on the mechanics of death. Paul is certainly right about people wanting to share good memories. Does it help? At a time when you need to smile but can't? Margot can do it. She is the ultimate grown-up. Anne is the ultimate child, and as such, is allowed to break down and be coddled by these people she has known forever. And me? Ideally, I'd be on the beach with the waves. Was it just yesterday morning that I'd been there with Dad, when he was short of breath, and I did nothing? Would it have mattered if I'd dragged him to the local ER? Would he have allowed it? This last question is a crock, of course. It puts the blame elsewhere to ease my guilt. But I'll always wonder, which is why I need time alone to process what was and will be. If I talk, I want it to be with Margot and Anne about our issues, or with Joy about death and her grandfather, or with Jack about truths that Tom Aldis now takes to his grave. I want to talk about the future. But death defines its own moments, and mourning with friends is where we have to be now. It isn't until eight in the evening that we're alone, by which point we're too tired to talk about ourselves or anything else. It's just the four of us nibbling bits of a chicken ziti casserole from a neighbor, and the farro and vegetable dish that Anne's assistant manager brought with Joy in mind. Not that Joy eats much more than we do. Hunger isn't a priority, any more than working through our differences is. We're respectful in a hands-off kind of way. We give each other space. Margot goes upstairs as soon as the kitchen is clean. Anne takes off for bills. That leaves me alone in the living room listening to Joy, who was in the sunroom picking out pieces on the piano. There's slow, sad ones, a few strains of someone like you, then strains of fix you. After a silence comes the opening of Bach's Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 4, which I never thought of as sad, but which grows more so as Allegro slows to adagio. Then, nothing. I wait for her to join me. When she doesn't, I cross to the sunroom door. Elbows on the keys, face in her hands, and shoulders hunched. My joy is joyless. Oh, baby, I breathe, rushing to the bench. As soon as my arms are around her, she begins to sob. Swaying, as we did when she was a baby, I rub her back until the tears slow. She wipes them with the heels of both hands. After a ragged exhalation, she regards me with tragic resignation. I almost had a grandfather. My heart breaks. She so, so wanted this. I could kill Tom Aldis for stealing it from her, which is a ridiculous thought, but I'm that upset for her. Death is a life lesson none of us escape. I know that. I just wish it had come later. Then I remember Margot's words. Accept what you can't change by changing what you can't accept. My father may have died nearly in front of my daughter's nose, but I won't have her thinking the timing was all bad. 
I can change the narrative, can't I? Touching her cheek, I say with vehemence, you did have a grandfather, Joy. You do. You'll always have memories of this time with him. You made his last days happier. Her nose and cheeks are red from planting that morning on the bluff in the sun, and her eyes are swollen and damp, but they hold hope. Did I? Absolutely. You played the piano for him. He loved that. He loved that you served him breakfast at the shop and made him breakfast at home. He loved that you looked like an Aldous woman. He even loved thinking you were Margot. Until Margot showed up. But you brought her to him first. He was so happy seeing you, Joy. I will never, ever forget the look on his face when he saw you at the clinic last Friday and when he reached for your hand and then didn't take his eyes off you the whole way home. You'll always have that memory. Papa wasn't naturally a happy person, not in the sense of being cheery or jovial and lighthearted. But when you played this piano for him, when he was sitting here beside you, he was peaceful. You gave him that. Really? Yes, I say with the confidence of a new memory now inked in. And if that memory is an exaggeration of the truth, it doesn't matter. Joy isn't the only one who needs it. The idea that my daughter helped my father in his last days comforts me as well. Unfortunately, my 13-year-old needs more. But why did he die so soon after I came? And why, like that, he was supposed to die of Alzheimer's? Well, I've thought about that too. There's an upside to it, I reason. He didn't want to live to be a vegetable. This was cleaner. Did he know it was happening? He knew his heart was weak. But when it happened, did he know? That he was having a heart attack? I don't know. Was he in pain? He was unconscious when we reached the shed, so I'm guessing no. But we were here, she argues, sounding hurt. Didn't he want to spend time with us? I thought he liked being with me. He did, oh, baby. He didn't choose to have a heart attack. It just happened. Does that mean it could happen to you? A heart attack can happen to anyone, but that isn't what she means. She means if my father had a heart attack, might I one day too? Genetically speaking, yes, if I am Tom's biological daughter. But am I? For a split second, I think of the scrap of gauze that I've squirreled away. It has bits of blood on it. And while I didn't think corpses could bleed, ongoing CPR must have caused leakage when they inserted an IV line. Will I use it? Oh, I can't go there yet. As for what Joy heard, we haven't discussed Anne's accusations, and now isn't the time. Framing her face with both hands, I look her in the eye. Anything can happen to anyone. But if I have trouble breathing, I'll see a doctor. I am not going anywhere, Joy. Got that? When she nods, I thumb the last tears from her cheeks and smile. Want to read? The switch takes her off guard, but the new light in her eye says I've hit the jackpot. She wags a finger between us. Together? Tonight? Papa would want that, I say. And the thought is a good one, if, again, more wishful than true. My father never read to me. He never read to any of us. Despot that he was, he thought we should read to ourselves. 
but I do like to think he approved of my reading to Joy. It plants another memory for my daughter that may not be based on fact, but that will benefit her in life. Yes, Papa would want it. So, we read. Though we haven't finished The Art of Racing in the Rain, Joy picks Number the Stars from the bookshelf in my room. She isn't as familiar with Lois Lowry as I was at her age, and there is an argument to be made that reading about the Holocaust is no more appropriate than the other after the day this has been. But the book, which made such a deep impression on me that I remember it to this day, is about bravery, heroism, and ultimate triumph. So we climb into bed and start. It's a distraction for Joy. Likewise for me, but only at first. As her head grows heavy on my shoulder, I feel the weight of our future, and with it, the same confusion I felt earlier. We're not facing a world war. Certainly, not one in which joy can be snatched from me. Still, I feel fear. I want to see the future, but can't. Not uh, about my daughter, not about my sisters, not about an ongoing role of Bay Bluff in my life. Midway through chapter three, she falls asleep. Closing the book, I treasure the weight of her head on my shoulder for a while. Then she turns away onto her side, breaking the contact, and my tether is gone. The night is dark. The sea sounds powerful through the open window. I am insignificant against it. I feel lost. Slipping deeper into the sheets, I listen for movement in the rest of the house. But the utter stillness only reminds me that Tom Aldis is dead. How to process that, when my feelings for the man are so mixed? I try to distract myself, thinking of the people who came by today, but their faces blur. Jack, my parentage, new info on Elizabeth, and pregnant. These issues have been put on hold by death. I don't even feel better when I think of New York. Job, condo, friends, all seem like another world, distant and distinct. The ocean floods the darkened room with the rumble of the tide. I might as well be out there, floundering in the night waves, because I can't see a freaking thing. Always before in my life, I've had direction. I've known where I wanted to go. Hell, five days ago I did. But something has upset the balance. Dad's death? Being in this place again with Margot and Anne? Seeing faces from the past? Being with Jack? Being with Jack. I'm trying not to think about him, but it isn't working. I can push thoughts of him to the back of my mind, but they slip forward again. That's what this place does to me. He's always in my head, hovering like a gnat. After swatting him away yet again, I cave. I'm tired of fighting. With all else that's going on, I want to be weak. Slipping from bed, I pull on my sweatshirt and run quietly down the stairs, Minutes later, I'm on the beach, that much closer to both the ocean and his house. The ladder is dark, save the kitchen light. I could cross the sand, climb the steps, and open the door. But my feet don't budge. They're asking me why I would go there. And they're right. I have to get through this myself. It's what I've done all these years. It's what I'll do again when I leave this place. Resolved, I settle into the lounge chair. I've no sooner tucked my feet under my bottom, though, when he comes out of the shadows. 
I'm not sure where he was hidden, but here he is, sliding a hand from my head down my neck to gesture me forward. Resist, a tiny voice cries. But that quickly, I'm lost. Once I'm forward, he swings a leg over the lounge behind me, lowers himself, and draws me back between his raised knees. My head fits into the crook of his neck, but having surrendered, that isn't enough for me. I know what's coming tomorrow and need an infusion of strength. Jack has always offered that. Turning sideways, I wrap my arms around his middle and press my face to the spot under his jaw where stubble ends. The scent of his skin is as familiar to me as my own. Memory and reality, for once, just the same. I'm right to dread Tuesday. It is as grueling as I imagined. I've always thought myself to be socially adept, certainly when it comes to making small talk. Isn't that what a peacemaker does? Or a mom sitting with other moms at the spring sing at school? Or a photographer whose client trails her from room to room to room? But endless hours of small talk with a steady stream of people coming to pay respects to my father? Exhausting. Years later, thinking back on this day, I will remember the most glowing of the comments. The people Tom helped, the friendships he held, the justice he served. Paul was right about that. They did capture Tom at his best. Today, though, it all blurs. As crystal clear as memory and reality were on the lounge chair with Jack last night, not so in the house on Tuesday. Whether I'm in the living room with the pastor, in the kitchen with a high school friend, of whom there were a bunch, or on the front porch with the woman who served as U.S. attorney for the state of Rhode Island while Dad was on the bench, the moments run together like streaks of sand swamped under an incoming wave. I remember Joy being by my side much of the time, and Paul maintaining a low profile while serving as the impromptu facilitator of the event. And Jack, whose presence may be controversial for Anne, but acceptable for the rest of the town. By evening, when the last of the visitors have left, we are too exhausted to think about burying Dad the next day. That's the point, I guess. The kitchen is packed with food that Lena has efficiently stored, but she too has left. And Anne, who needs to reclaim a semblance of control, decides to grill chicken. No matter that there is more chicken than anything else in the fridge, she can't fathom eating any of that, she declares in distaste, and sets to work. I'm not about to argue. The truce between us is fragile. Far be it for me to risk breaking it. We let her direct us. Salad bowl there, she orders Joy with the hitch of her chin. And thin slice that zucchini. She instructs me with a nod at the cutting block. She sends Margot to the market for fingerling potatoes, sends Bill to the package store for beer. Then she spots tall, tousled hair, stubble-jawed Jack, planted against the dining room jam, and when he asks what he can do, she stares. Leave, she's about to say when I step in front of her. Truce or not, I can't be silent. Jack is here for me, maybe even for joy. Please, I whisper. Her eyes snap to mine, and I brace myself. But her tone is surprisingly mild. Dad would not want him here. Dad won't know. I offer an apology. Please, let him help. I'm not sure whether she feels he'll be a buffer between us, whether she concedes for the sake of Bill, who does like him, or whether she's just too tired to fight. 
But after a minute, she says, fine, and looks at Jack. You, set the table. Joy laughs. Anne shoots her a dark look before grabbing the grill brush and heading out back. My daughter rounds innocent eyes on me. What? He can scrape the grill. He can vacuum the living room or, or fix the doorbell, which, FYI, does not work. What does he know about setting a table? Oh, ye of little faith, Jack murmurs with a smirk and, straightening from the jam, pivots into the dining room. After slicing the zucchini, I join him. He has managed to find the basics and is circling the table with napkins and plates. Leaning against the peach-painted wall with my arms folded, I consider the absurdity of what he is doing, and where, until he's done, at which point he puts a shoulder to the wall close beside me. This is the first time all day that we've been alone. His voice is low. Doing okay? I lean just that little bit sideways so that we touch, my form of self-medication. His warmth always loosens me up, and I need that after the day that was. Weird, I say. So many people. To hear them talk, he was beloved. Is that seriously what they remember? The corner of his mouth twitches in a smirk, just barely contained. It's selective memory. They wanted to help you. Did they? Some. I had no idea he went to bat to help the Iger's son get into Harvard. Why didn't he tell us that? Maybe because he didn't go to bat to help you get in there. Maybe because he was too busy making your life miserable. I want to scold him for speaking ill of the dead, but if his bitterness is loyalty to me, how can I fight that? Maybe he did talk about it, I whisper. Maybe I just don't remember. But Jack's eyes have drifted off. I follow them through the front hall to the living room, where they focus on Dad's chair. It still bears the imprint of his body. None of us fluffed its cushions, not even Lena. Incredibly, as though there was a sign with Dad's name, it stayed empty all day. Hard to believe he won't sit there again, I say, to which Jack threads a piece of hair behind my ear, then snakes an arm around my shoulder and tugs me close. It isn't until he speaks again that I realize I'm comforting him as much as the other way around. His voice is reverent. For me, it was the dressing table where my mother did her hair. I used to hate it, because when she sat there, she was getting ready to leave. I look up at him, but the memory has him in full grip. The chair was a stool with a low back. It fit all the way underneath. When I was six or eight or nine, I don't know, I, I used to pull it out like she had just left it and would be back. Dad pushed it in. I pulled it out again. Taking a deep breath, he returns to me, looking down with eyes that are sad and resigned. Yeah, it's hard to believe. All of it. I brush my cheek against his shirt collar, then draw back and touch it in awe. He had worked early that morning, but had showered and changed before coming here. A pressed shirt and slacks? So not like the Jack I remember, but... Apparently like the Jack he is now, because there are no price tags in sight. He cocks his head at the empty chair. Tell me what you feel. You first. Uh, about him. If this is a moment of truth, I want it all. There was no love lost between my father and Jack. Jack has a right to blame Tom Aldis for that empty dressing table. I'm okay with his being happy dad is dead. Isn't that poetic justice? 
but happy isn't the word he uses when his eyes fall to mine. Relieved. Really? Milder than I thought. That he's dead. That there's one less wall between you and me. Not knowing how to answer that, I ask, what else? Do I feel? Scared. I don't need any elaboration here either. With my father gone and Anne hostile and Margot soon returning to Chicago and me to New York, what becomes of us as a couple is a huge question. Bad timing, huh? He asks with an unapologetic look. Selfish of me? Confrontational, I reply, then plead. I can't go there, Jack. Right now, I'm only thinking of now. Dad is gone. He can't answer our questions. Yeah, and that's another thing, he says. I'm fucking pissed at him for leaving us up in the air. I almost laugh. This is more my Jack. Maybe he told us everything he knows. Everything? Like what happened in the days leading up to that night on the boat? Like what he knew about my mother's family estate? Like whether he was your biological father? Turning to fully face him, I jiggle his arm. Don't be angry. Not today. He raises his brows and looks to the ceiling. I'm not sure what he sees there, but when he returns to me, he is calmer. Something new. This self-control, maturity, compassion, sheer force of will. Whatever, it is welcome. Besides, I say, Paul will help. Has he said anything? Not today. It was enough that he made introductions when I didn't remember people. I mean, I wince. Old high school friends? I'd already seen Deanna Smith and Joe Domenico, but Alex LaRouche? Angie Ballantine? Mark Miller? A and there was Paul whispering names in my ear. He's definitely on our side. I do believe that. Paul will help us get to the truth. First, though, we have the funeral to survive. Funerals have a way of stretching on when the deceased leaves a long list of hymns, readings, and eulogies, with the names of people to deliver them. The hymns and readings are a mystery to us, since Dad wasn't a regular worshiper. The eulogies are more predictable. One is given by a fellow judge, one by the lieutenant governor of the state, one by Paul. Tom didn't name any of us to speak. We could only guess that when he wrote his letter, he didn't know whether Margot and I would even come, and Anne, well, Anne is not the kind of speaker he wants to paint a lasting picture of him. For one thing, she is a woman, and Dad was a man's man all the way. For another, he would have known she would be too weepy to say much. What do I remember of this day? I remember Margot's husband and sons appearing in time for breakfast after flying in from Paris. She had told them not to come, and given that none of the three really knew Dad, the fact that they cut short their trip to be with Margot is special. I'm envious of that. More, I'm relieved that Joy has her cousins with her. I remember wearing the little black dress that Margot ordered online yesterday for early morning delivery today. The eminent personal shopper. She chose different ones for each of us. I may have a full wardrobe of black in New York, but I'm not in New York, and neither Joy nor Anne has anything remotely appropriate to wear to a funeral. Jeans and Joe does have a sundress rack, but the offerings are beachy and short. I remember the church choir singing, Be Thou My Vision, which took me right back to childhood Sundays with Mom. 
and eternal father strong to save, since dad was a jag in the Navy, and amazing grace. I remember the arched windows running the length of the nave, clear-glassed and multi-paned, and the pastor's voice, another throwback to my childhood. I remember wanting to sit beside Jack, who wore a tie and jacket and looked so respectable that I hated it, but ending up between Anne and Joy. I held Joy's hand, or she mine, while sitting in the row behind, the so respectable man in the tie and jacket put a hand on my shoulder at discreet moments. I remember the god-awful ride behind the hearse to the grave by the sea. Dad does have a beautiful spot that is deep into the cemetery, in one of the older sections within sight and sound of the surf. Gathering here, we are fewer in number, mostly those who were closest to him. I stand with Jack and Joy, because Anne is with Bill, and Margot with Dan, Teddy, and Jeff, and really, is there anyone to question it? Jack and I were best friends back then. It stands to reason he would support me now. I remember a string of graveside prayers, the lowering of the casket, and Joy clinging to me when the first clod of dirt hit mahogany. I remember needing to touch each of my sisters as we turned to leave, and then there are others to thank before they walk back across the grass to their cars. Seeing blonde hair in retreat, I realize it is Lily and wonder briefly if she is here to make sure my father is well and truly gone. Then I stop short, and not out of guilt at this uncharitable thought. A woman stands alone, facing us from the very rear of the gathering. Dressed all in black, black blazer, slacks, and glasses, she looks vaguely exotic, or would if not for her hair. Though exotically dark, it is pulled into a messy bun that has nothing to do with style. Her beach wave simply won't otherwise behave. I know. We've discussed it dozens of times. <gasps> Look, Mom, Joy cries on a note of delight, but I'm already running forward. Chrissy, I say and hold her tightly for a long, long minute. You did not have to come. Where else would I be? You're my best friend. <sighs> Thank you, I say. Drawing back, I take what feels like my first deep breath in hours. Chrissy represents such a sane part of my world that the sight of her brings instant relief. D did you just drive up? I didn't see you in the church. You should have sat with us. Oh, no, says my friend. I didn't make it to the church. Bad traffic out of the city, and Keon had a nightmare accident in his Captain America undies that I couldn't leave for the nanny, so I was late. And anyway, I'm here under the radar just for you. Enjoy, she adds with a brighter smile and opens arms for my daughter. Joy Z, I'm so sorry about your grandfather. The hug barely ends when the direction of those dark glasses shifts to the man who has come up by my shoulder. This is Jack. Suddenly shy, even nervous, she holds out her hand. The notorious Chrissy, Jack remarks. I've named her as one of the reasons I love my life in New York, but whether he respects that or resents it is up in the air. I can't see his eyes. Like Chrissy's, they're behind sunglasses. You look familiar, he says. Because she looks like me, I explain. Chrissy and I have always joked about this. I do, she says with a tentative smile, which dies all together when her focus moves past us. 
Turning my head to follow, I see Lena approaching. She wears a dowdy navy dress and clutches a small purse, neither of which is out of character for a woman who works in the shadows. But the look on her face? It is light years removed from the who-are-you stare she gave me in the kitchen Saturday morning. The one she is giving Chrissy is what? Hurt? Shocked? Angry? Chrissy's eyes remain hidden, but I sense a silent panic. She seems frozen, barely breathing, like she has no idea what to do. I slip an arm through hers to let Lena know that she's mine, but it helps neither of them. Chrissy opens her mouth to speak, closes it, and swallows. There are several beats of ominous silence before Chrissy capitulates. Seeming to realize she has no other option, she takes a shaky breath and says, Hi, Mom. Chapter 24 Mom? What the- I look from Chrissy to Lena for explanation, but neither seems to know what to say to the other, much less to me, and the silence doesn't bode well. Chrissy always knows what to say. She is the ultimate diplomat, the ultimate mediator, the ultimate friend. She has never once in our seven-year friendship told me anything that wasn't the truth. But mom? A tiny window of betrayal cracks open, just enough for appalling thoughts to sneak under and in. My Chrissy's full name is Christina, which can also be shortened to Tina, which is the nickname by which Lena's daughter was known. My Chrissy's last name is Perez. I don't know her maiden name because it never mattered. We relate to each other in the present, and in the present, I know that my Chrissy's father is dead and that she is estranged from her mother who refuses to accept her biracial husband. My Chrissy is three years younger than me, as was the little sister of my friend Danny Aiello. My Chrissy has a brother, Dan. Margot would point to her husband and remind me that Daniel is a common name, but that common? Why are you here? Lena scolds with the hushed intimacy only a mother and daughter would share, which rattles me even more. I catch Jack's eye, looking for something he knows that I don't. He may remember Tina Aiello better than I do. He may have seen Tina in recent years and seen no resemblance at all between that woman and this. But he is no help to me here. His twitch of a head shake says he's as confused as I am. Chrissy isn't confused. This is the kicker. I can't see her eyes. They are hidden behind her sunglasses. Hidden, like mine were when I climbed from the car at the square last Friday afternoon and wanted to stay anonymous. Chrissy wanted that too, but she has been found out. To judge from the sudden flush on her cheeks, she is mortified. Turning her back on Lena, she clutches my arms and says in a desperate whisper, I'm sorry, Mal. I never dreamed she'd be here. If I'd known, I wouldn't have come. I wanted to be at the funeral for you, but the last thing I wanted was to make things worse. You don't need this right now. I'm going to leave. Just drive back. You are not, I cut in. Staring into her barely outlined eyes, I see my own reflection. The blend of the two is as freaky as anything else. The damage is done. What's going on? Not now, she begs softly. Not here. In the next instant, though, her attention shifts. Focusing past me, she gives the tiniest shiver before breaking into an uneasy smile. Hey, Margot says, coming up by my side. She isn't suspicious, just curious. 
Margot, this is my friend Chrissy from New York. I say as casually as possible, but here is another thought. These two never met in the city, and through no fault of mine. When my sisters were coming to town, I repeatedly invited Chrissy to join us. I even appealed to her therapist other by saying that if she met Margot and Anne, she could understand me better. But either she had to work, or Keon was sick, or Dante wanted to spend the weekend at the Jersey Shore. Now I see why she was evasive. She feared Margot would recognize her, which lends credence to the fact that she's known for a while that she was hiding a very, very important fact from me. I want to know why, and I want to know now. To Margot, I say, can Joy ride back to the house with you so Chrissy and I can talk? But I want to stay, Joy argues. She senses something is up. Of course she does. Margot puts a possessive arm around her shoulders, gutting the protest, and gives Chrissy a warm smile. Mal has mentioned you so often, I feel like I know you. Thank you for coming. I feel like I know you. How ironic is that? And Margot not even connecting Chrissy to Tina? Not that the lack of recognition is surprising. Margot is two years older than me, meaning five years older than Chrissy, which is a huge span in school. And Chrissy has changed a lot. At least I think she has. My memories of Tina Aiello are vague. I recall a girl who was dark-haired and pudgy, who was smart but shy and wore T-shirts and jeans to fit into the crowd. My Chrissy struggles with body image issues. We've discussed it many times. She still carries extra weight on her hips, but you'd never know it from her chic way with tunics and long blazers. As for being shy, the woman who struck up a conversation with me seven years ago on an adjacent stair climber at the gym wasn't shy. She was confident and friendly and interesting and fun, all of which raises the horrendous thought that it was all a carefully conceived plot, that she'd known exactly who I was, that she had deliberately chosen that particular stair climber, that she had been stalking me. No, not stalking, or maybe in a watered-down sense of the word, but a pathological stalker? No. If Chrissy Perez was that, I'd have seen other elements of psychosis in her, and I've never seen a one. We're that close. Still, if this brilliant woman, this sensitive woman, this loving woman hid such a crucial fact from me all this time, what does that say about our friendship? I need answers, but not with joy listening. This is between Chrissy and me. And while Margot can't possibly know what's going on here, she has taken my daughter in hand. Again. And I'm grateful. Again. So I remind Joy, your cousins are here, babe. They want you. Joy wants them, too, which is why her leaving doesn't take any more convincing than that. But she doesn't go before asking Chrissy, will I see you at the house? And how to answer that. Worst case scenario, Joy and Chrissy may never see each other again. I'm agonizing about that when Chrissy tugs on the side braid that falls thick and vibrant over my daughter's collarbone. I may have to head right back, Joy, but somewhere or other I'll catch you. Go, be with your cousins. When Joy gives her a parting hug, I realize something else. Chrissy is good at equivocating. She knows how to be vague in a way that sounds definitive, but that doesn't say a hell of a lot. A therapist does this. A friend should not. Chrissy could have told Joy she would see her tomorrow morning, or next week in New York, or next month at the Jersey Shore, because Dante's place is large. 
but any of those promises would lessen her options. The evidence mounts. Right now, it's circumstantial, but I sense that's about to change. After Joy leaves with Marco, Anne and Bill linger at Dad's grave, watching workers fill in the rest of the dirt. Jack stands with Paul a short distance from us, and with the rest of the mourners heading for their cars, it's Lena, Chrissy, and me. Why are you here, Mom? Chrissy asks Lena, but she sounds confused, not accusatory. She's Dad's housekeeper, I explain. Why are you here? Lena hisses at Chrissy again. I answer this as well, perhaps more sharply than I might have, but I'm in a rush to move past the preliminaries. We're friends in New York, I tell Lena, though all the while I'm staring at Chrissy. I want her to know that I'm waiting. She's here to support me. A beat passes. Aren't you? I ask, hating the bitterness in my voice. That was the idea, Chrissy says with a snort. Clearly it backfired. She looks hurriedly around. Then, telling Lena that we need a few minutes alone, she grabs my arm and leads me down a paved path, past headstones and under trees whose leaves whisper in the ocean breeze, toward a stone bench facing the sea. As we walk, I smell age and foliage and ocean, even a trace of honeysuckle wafting from nearby bushes. I also smell Chanel's Gabrielle, which I gave to Chrissy last Christmas. Her voice is breathless as we walk. I know you have to be back at the house. This might have waited if my mother hadn't seen me. Waited how long? I ask as we leave the grass and reach the bench. Her hand has left my arm, removing this last bit of connectedness. I don't sit. I can't. I can barely even hear the sea. So if Chrissy thought that would calm me, this plan backfires as well. And here is another memory, poking at me like a bratty child. How many times have I told Chrissy about my love of the sea? How many times have I described growing up beside it, seeking solace in the fact that it is always, always there? These were doors that I naively opened, and she knowingly ignored. Tell me, Chrissy, now. The warning in my voice is for real. Our friendship depends on what she says. As it stands, I'm feeling lied to and betrayed. The one relationship that I have relied on most these past few years is in serious jeopardy. If there isn't truth, there isn't trust. And if there isn't trust, what is there? She puts the back of her hand to her nose. It is a gesture I know, one that means she is trying to decide what to do. Only this time, she isn't grappling with her three-year-old's all-out, on-the-floor temper tantrum. Finally, her fingers go to her sunglasses, which she removes. Her eyes are frightened, which is good. I'm glad it's not just me. When I walked into the gym that first day, she begins, leaning against the stone bench, then straightening again, seeming unsure which to do. I had no idea who you were. I swear it, Mal. It was pure coincidence that we ended up next to each other. Then we started talking and just kept at it. She is begging now. I'd never clicked with anyone like that before. And the conversation had nothing to do with hometowns or parents. It was about the gym and kids and baby fat. And when we went for coffee afterward, we talked about work. Do you remember? I nod, but am only marginally relieved. That was the first of what? A thousand conversations, during any one of which you might have told me who you were? When did you make the connection? Her eyes widen, 
like she fears what she is about to say. After a last pause, she blurts out, When we exchange names and phone numbers. That first day? I ask in horror. Fine. She hadn't planned it in advance. Still. You knew all this time? You knew and didn't tell me? I wanted to, she cries. I really did. Why didn't you? I shout with a ferocity that sounds harsh even to me. But hell, I'm not the peacemaker with Chrissy. That's one of the things I love, loved, about our friendship. I don't need to be in control. Her eyes grow teary. I don't know, she whispers. We were at a Starbucks, sitting between a geek on a computer and a, a couple who could have been our parents, listening to every word we said. You gave me your information, and I, I typed it in my phone, and seeing it there in print, I realized I knew it. But it seemed too bizarre to be true. And if it was true, I, I wasn't sure how I felt. I drew back. What does that mean? If she was embarrassed to claim me as a friend because of the Aldous McKay affair, I would scream. But no, Chrissy wasn't that petty, which is small solace in this shitty situation. In place of it, she is off on a different tack. I had issues with Bay Bluff. My growing up years weren't the best. My mother and I were always at odds. My dad was a serial cheater. Their marriage fell apart. Suddenly, there you were at the gym, my best friend in waiting, and we hit it off so well that I knew I'd met someone special. But I didn't want you to be from Bay Bluff. I didn't want any connection to Bay Bluff. Just to be sure, I asked where you were from. Do you remember? No, I do not. Oh, actually, I do. After I told her I was from Westerly, she said she was from New Haven, and I assumed that was where she'd grown up. I continued to assume it, even after she explained that she and her husband had lived there before moving into Manhattan. Technically, she hadn't lied. Still, I'm devastated. How could you not have said something, Chrissy? You learned we were from the same itty-bitty little village. I mean, what were the odds? Okay, so you didn't want any connection to Bay Bluff, but we were miles from there, miles from the people we'd been. Weren't you even a little excited about that? A normal person would be jumping up and down to immediately click with someone and then discover a kind of karma connection. I was, Chrissy insists, sheltering herself with an arm over her head. Oh, you have no idea. But I didn't say anything that day. I don't know why. And time went on. And I love that you were my New York friend. And, and we grew closer. And you held my hand through my struggle to conceive. And then my nightmare pregnancy. And Kian was born. And I fell in love with joy. And the time was never right. Because saying something after years of silence was impossible. I could almost understand that. Marginally calmer, I ask. But why now? Why risk coming back here and being recognized? Your dad died. And that made it worth the risk? I ask, skeptical. She and I are on the same wavelength so often it's scary. But I'm not there with her now. Yes. Why? Your dad died, she repeats, suddenly disciplined. Suddenly the woman who coaches lost souls. The woman who understands love and grief and regret. Whether or not he's your biological, he was your dad. I knew you'd be feeling lost and conflicted, maybe even guilty that you haven't seen him more. 
I knew this whole, she gestures widely back at the cemetery, business was going to be difficult for you, and I knew your sisters would be here. I wanted to be here for you too. It's the proper response, but I know Chrissy too well. There's more. Her look right now is frightened, pleading, pregnant. Facing the sea, for all the good it's doing, I brace my hands on the top of the bench. Its roughness gives me traction as I consider how to proceed. But bluntness is the only way. Diplomacy is beyond me. What aren't you saying? She doesn't answer. My eyes fly to hers then, because suddenly I see. She's from Bay Bluff. She's Roberto Aiello's daughter. She's heard the rumors. You think we're sisters? She hesitates for several seconds more. Maybe she's waiting for me to elaborate. Maybe she's hoping I'll deny it and offer evidence to the contrary. Maybe she's praying I'll confirm it, saying I suspected it all along. But how could I have ever suspected it when she's kept me in the dark all this time? She must have realized that, because her words burst out like horses breaking from the derby gate. It makes sense, Mal. Us looking alike and thinking alike. I don't believe in chance, and I don't believe in cosmic voodoo, but what are the odds that we'd end up beside each other in the gym? So maybe it was meant to be, and maybe I was afraid to let you know who I was because I suffered through talking about Babe Bluff with my own therapist, and it was too painful to repeat. Maybe I wanted it so badly that I was afraid to give you a chance to say it was not. She takes a breath as reality slows her down. And your dad got sick. I couldn't say anything because it was inappropriate. And once you were back here, you were with him and Anne, and then Margot came, and there was everything you were learning about your mom. When was I supposed to tell you, Mal? She pleads. Would it have helped in the middle of all that if I told you we were sisters? You're not, Paul says in a voice that is kind but firm. I don't know when he and Jack approached, but here they are. I've been so lost in Chrissy that after years without Jack, I'm actually startled to see him again. In that surprise, he is a momentary distraction. He has taken off his blazer and tie, rolled the sleeves of his shirt to the elbow, and pushed a hand through his hair. Stunning in all regards. He has been a rock these last two days. My rock. But so has Paul. And since he's the one who has just spoken, my attention slides there. You sound sure. I am, Mallory. I told you that Monday. He eyes Chrissy. I'm not sure if she knows who he is, but between his dark suit, the lines on his face, and his manner, he exudes quiet authority. The rumors were unfounded. Eleanor Aldis was never with your father that way. Chrissy frowns at Lena, who has come to us right along with the men. He told me he was, the older woman says in self-defense. That explains the scrutiny she gave me Saturday morning. She was looking for Roberto in me. Paul's voice is gentle, but all the more weighty for its reluctance. If he said that, then he lied. I know, he returns to me, just me now because your mother denied it. I believe her because she never lied to me. Quietly, he adds, and because I know who is. I press a fist to the center of my chest. 
who is. Chapter 25 The world recedes. Oh, I'm sure that the ocean continues to roll and its breeze stirs the trees. Birds still call, squirrels still rustle, insects still buzz as they did during the pastor's words. All I hear now, though, is the pulse of my own blood. Paul is silent as well. Not so, his hazel eyes. This isn't the time, they say. We're burying your father today. If it's waited this long, will just a little longer hurt? The words are familiar. Haven't I just heard them from Chrissy? She has fallen into the periphery, but I answer Paul with the same insistence I did her. Yes, my eyes shout back. Now! Releasing a breath, he looks skyward in apology, then at the waves in frustration. But the expression that finally meets mine holds wry amusement. My insistence has surprised him, and not in a bad way, says the small twitch at the corner of his mouth. Appreciation is not what I need right now. Sensing that, he sobers and ticks his head toward the paved path that skirts the ocean. A low seawall rises at its edge, two feet of artfully placed stone packed with mortar to block sea surge. Its flat-brim mosaic of slate and rust is wide enough for mourners to sit. But Paul doesn't have sitting in mind not before an audience. Walk with me, he asks, though it isn't really a question. He is already moving past the bench toward the path. Suddenly, I do feel a second's qualm. Do I really want to know? Do I really want to know now? He's right. This isn't the best time. But I've waited so long, wondered so long, not to mention the tiny part of me that wants it to be now in sheer defiance of Tom Aldis, who also kept me in the dark. I am turning to follow him when Jack touches my arm. His eyes are the gray of soft flannel and worry. He wants to know if I'm okay, or want him to come along. The sun glances off his chestnut hair, the tip of his straight nose, his light beard. Knowing he's here is all I need. Managing a small smile, I shake my head and set off. I'm safe with Paul. Years of childhood memories tell me that. I catch up with him in an instant, and we walk silently along the path for a bit. Funny, but I feel no rush now. Paul was always measured. He'll take his time, but I can trust what he says. If there isn't trust, what is there? And he is truly all I have left of my parents' generation. We follow the path as it curves along the shoreline. Finally, he stops in the shade of a weeping willow. His hands are in his pockets, drawing back his suit jacket in what should be a relaxed pose. But he is tense. I see it in his face, his ramrod straight back, even the set of his loafered feet. He is about to speak. I can still stop him. No, I cannot. As he looks toward the waves, the past arrives. I've known Tom for 40 years. We met at a law conference in Boston, and his mind was the best legal one there. People were always drawn to him for that. I was no exception. I want to say he was drawn to mine the same way. He slips me a self-deprecating smile. But he was more interested in the fact that I lived in Westerly. 
He vacationed here as a child, and it was where he wanted to settle. Our forming a law firm was a natural offshoot of that. We rented space and hired associates and were just getting off the ground when he signed papers to build the house. He darts me another glance to check that I'm still with him, willing to let him set the pace. And honestly, I thought he would blurt out a name as soon as we were far enough from the others. Yes, I'm impatient, but I understand his wanting to start the story at the beginning on this day of remembrance. Besides, there is something about his voice, a personal, heartfelt shade, that, while not quite hypnotic, slows me down. He was dating your mother then, he continues. The house was not yet finished when they got married, so the wedding was in Newport. He smiles at that. It was an extravaganza. Tom had lots of friends and even more acquaintances, and he wanted them all there. Ellie didn't know them, but she did know me. I was her fallback. She kept coming to talk with me when the rush of faces got too much. Was the marriage doomed from way back then? I ask. Oh, no. His eyes are sincere. She was good with company after she got to know people. Once the house was done, they entertained often. Bless her. She always included me. You were her rock, I say, understanding it even more these last two days. Your dad was too, in his way, Paul insists. He was solid, predictable. She knew what she had to do to please him. And when he started having affairs, I ask. I understand Paul wanting to lead me gently toward my mother's infidelity, but I also want to think she was provoked. He raises one foot to the stone wall, leans an elbow on his knee, and circles one set of fingers with the other as he slides me a look of regret. Not good. She was hurt, angry. Was he, shagging is the word I almost say before filtering the thought. Having an affair with Elizabeth then? No, I know there was some history, but Eleanor was okay with Elizabeth. The two of them had an understanding, I'm not entirely sure what it was, but they were comfortable with each other. Living so close may have helped. Each could see what the other was doing, and Elizabeth had her own marriage to protect. Besides, your mother knew that Elizabeth didn't suffer fools lightly and would have no qualms telling Tom, even during a family event, when he was being a prick. His eyes widen. Sorry. His gallantry is sweet in an old school way. Don't apologize. He was one sometimes. Thinking of that, I wonder how far his prickness went. Was he ever physically abusive to mom? Not to my knowledge, but he was demanding. This I knew. I had seen it for myself. Demanding husband, demanding father. Which brought me back to why we are talking now, Paul and me, about who was unfaithful and with whom. I refocus. So my father had affairs. Yes. Mom knew, yes. Did she have more than one herself? Removing his foot from the wall, Paul straightens. No, there was only ever one. It was meaningful. Something about his quiet intensity, the way his eyes hold mine, starts my heart thumping. And not because I'm about to learn what I've been waiting for ages to hear. I have a sudden horrendous thought that the answer won't be at all what I thought. How do you know, I whisper, afraid to breathe. 
Willows are notoriously messy. This one has dropped silver-backed leaves along the seawall. Paul picks one up and rubs its slender length with thumb and forefinger. Paul, his eyes return to mine. His mouth, that kind mouth, tips into a self-conscious smile. Despite the waves, the cry of a gull, even the distant drone of an airplane at this very minute, the silence is deafening. I take a step back, but where to go that the truth won't follow? You, I whisper. He huffs a laugh, both awkward and apologetic. Not what you expected? You were my father's best friend. You were part of the family. It can't be you. His smile is rueful. Those things made me the perfect candidate. Your mother and I grew closer, and no one suspected. But b behind his back? We didn't plan it, Mallory. It just happened. Things like that do. It meant nothing? In a flash, he is earnest. It meant everything. I had loved your mother for a very long time. Did she love you? He considers his answer, picking his words with obvious care. She did, though I think in a different way from me. I was a friend, not necessarily the love of her life. But she was the love of his life. The implication is there, which raises a raft of questions relating to her life after the divorce. Oh, I can't go there yet. I'm stuck on the basics, trying to imagine the idea of Paul, Schuster, and my mother together. On one hand, it's a no-brainer. Paul was often at our house. He liked being in the kitchen with Mom, while Dad wouldn't be caught dead there. Paul chipped in with domestic things that Dad considered beneath him. My mother and Paul were easier with each other than either of them was with Tom. On the other hand, seeing my mother and Paul working together in the kitchen is very different from picturing them in bed. Naked? Limbs linked? Passionate enough to produce... me? I cover my face with a hand. Oh, there are too many emotions to sort through. For the sake of survival, I distance myself. As if their affair was between people I didn't know. My hand slips away. Was it one night only? He seems vulnerable, upset by my reaction. But what had he expected? Unbridled excitement? Oh, biological dad, I love you so much. As he lowers himself to the seawall, his eyes are older, begging me to understand. I loved your mother. That started early on, but she loved your father. I had no idea why, but she did. Then he had one affair too many. So it was revenge? I don't want to think this is how I was conceived. Actually, I'm wondering whether Paul is right at all. Oh, I'm sure he and Mom had an affair. He couldn't imagine that. But the idea that he was around our family all those years, harboring this huge, intimate, marriage-blowing secret, me, is beyond the pale. Besides which, he loved my mother. He said that twice now. If she didn't love him the same way, there might well have been other men Paul refuses to acknowledge. Not revenge, he says. It was more a cry for help. She felt rejected by Tom and came to me. She knew how I felt, and 
At that point in her life, she needed to know she was loved. It sounds innocent enough. Still, Paul helping Eleanor meant cheating on his best friend, not to mention that he hasn't answered my question. I repeat it. Was it just one time? He runs a hand down the back of his head and gazes at a far-off barge. It went on for a bit. What's a bit? My out-of-body person asks. His eyes find mine. A few months. And before and after? How do you know she didn't have others? I told you that earlier. She said it, and I believed her. Why did it stop? With us? Guilt. Guilt? About cheating on Tom Aldous? But what about me? If I am Paul's biological daughter, what about me? It'd be one thing if my biological father was the gardener or the electrician or the goddamned roofer. I'd expect any one of those to cut and run. But Paul? Mr. Kindness? Mr. Caring? Mr. Responsibility? I would have expected more of him. And our talk on the front steps on Monday? I specifically asked him about all this. In a heartbeat, I'm furious about silence and evasion and secrets, about all that went on that I knew nothing of, all that might have helped me growing up under Tom Aldous's critical eye. Angrily, I say, you watched me all those years thinking I was your daughter? Did you not know how miserable I was? How I felt there was something wrong with me that my father treated me the way he did? I knew, he admits in defeat, and sensing my upset, pushes up from the wall. I'm not sure if he wants to protect me belatedly with his height or, or use it to protect himself. And you did nothing, I ask. What would you have had me do? Tell me, I say, like it's the most obvious thing in the world. Paul is suddenly as intense as I am. And put a wedge between you and your sisters? and risk you resenting your mother or blurting the truth to Tom at some point, which might have caused him to treat you worse or even disown you? Or break up the law firm, I add. Because I'm not ready to see him as an icon of altruism. There were selfish reasons for what he, what they did. Didn't you feel like a fraud? Every blessed day, he says with vehemence. But what would you have had me do, Mallory? What? I don't know. Still, my anger remains. I am angry at the situation, at all those lost years, maybe even at the awkwardness I feel now, which I never before felt with Paul. I can't process the fact that he is my biological father. I'm so not in control of my feelings that I resent him for that, too. What if you aren't, I ask. I know I sound spiteful, even infantile, but that's what anger does. When he looks confused, I say, what if you aren't my father after all? What if Tom was the only one with my mother during the time she conceived? They were going through a rough patch for months before and after. They didn't have sex. She said, I'll happily take a DNA test. I think of that scrap of gauze. It would tell me if Tom and I match, but if not, it wouldn't tell me who does. What if she was with someone other than you? DNA test, he repeats. Why did she never tell me, I ask. She divorced dad, she could have told me then. Did you ask her not to? Absolutely not. I wanted her to tell you. I begged her, he stops short. 
Then why didn't she? I cry with a resurgence of the emotions I had felt so often since my mother's death. She didn't know she would die so young, but I was a grown-up. I had a baby of my own. I deserved to know the truth. Didn't she trust me? It was Tom she didn't trust, Paul says. She didn't know what he would do if word got back to him. He pauses, pained. How can I say things like this today? How can you not? I fire back. He's gone. She's gone. We are not. He considers that. True. And you're right to be upset with Eleanor, but you have to understand. She worried he would destroy me or destroy you. Tom could be vindictive. There was this lawyer. Newcomb, I say, remembering the name well. I remember my father's vitriolic comments at dinner when he got so caught up in ranting to mom that he forgot we girls were there. He accused Tom of accepting a bribe in exchange for giving a defendant a light sentence. Tom got him disbarred. Rightly so, I ask. I can't say that I always wondered. My father's venom was so lethal that I had to believe his version. Paul releases a small breath. I can't say. Won't say. He fixes me with a look of gentle chiding. It's not my place, Mallory. Tom isn't here to defend himself. I just ask that you understand why your mother did what she did. Or didn't do what she didn't do, I think, and suddenly picture Chrissy's guilty face. These were all sins of omission. And Paul? I'm not yet ready to rationalize his fault. How do I know you don't just want this to be true? You never had kids of your own, so maybe you want to think I'm it. Before he can say DNA test again, I rush on. I'm being irrational, but the whole situation feels irrational. How do I know you aren't just the last man standing? His words are low but firm. Because I know things another person wouldn't know. I saw things another person wouldn't see. Like? A birthmark. My heart stops. My mother's birthmark. Joy's birthmark. Both hidden where only someone with intimate knowledge of a person's body would ever see. I stare at him, but he doesn't blink. Either he is an expert liar who is repeating something my father told him. Though why the impersonal Tom Aldis would tell anyone something as personal as that is beyond me. Or he has seen that birthmark himself. Since I have never before had cause to think Paul Schuster a liar, and since there is no other way he would have seen it, I have to accept that he and my mother had an affair. And if I accept that, I realize with a start I have no reason to doubt the outcome. Overwhelmed, I back away. Mallory, I hold up a hand, warding off any paternal words as I struggle to accept. There's still the matter of where he's been all my life, why he didn't come forward either after I moved to New York or after Mom died. There's still the matter of where he was when my daughter, his granddaughter, was born. Tom wasn't around. Paul might have been. I feel bitter about it all, confused by a world that apparently considers the whole truth and nothing but to be optional. Mostly, I feel swamped. Too much is shifting underfoot. My relationship with my sisters, my faith in my best friend, my father's death. And yes, I'll always think of Tom Aldis as my father. But the rest? I've lost control of things I thought I knew. 
Paul says my name again. Ignoring it, I turn and run. I have no destination. All I know is that I'm grateful Joy isn't here. Grateful that the heels Margot bought me are low. Grateful that the seawall path takes me away from where I've just been. After following it along a wide arc, I see the parking lot ahead. The hearse is gone, for which I'm grateful as well. I see Chrissy's CRV, Lena's Civic, and Paul's Lexus. I see the Volvo that says Anne is still here, and a dirty truck with the cemetery logo on the side and a wheelbarrow in the back. Oh, I also see Jack's Tahoe. Fortunately, it is unlocked, and while it's hot inside, I don't care. Pulling out my phone, I text him. I'm in your truck. Can we go?